From WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes, a podcast about Wisconsin politics and politicians. I'm Marty Michelson. Each week, I discuss noteworthy developments with J.R. Ross, editor of WISPolitics.com. Here's our latest conversation. So, J.R., a federal appeals court panel has upheld a number of voting restrictions in Wisconsin just four months before the November presidential election. They include limits on early voting hours and a return to requiring people to live in a district for 28 days, not 10, before they can vote. Republicans who control the legislature enacted the restrictions when they swept into office in 2011. Liberal groups challenged the limitations, and a court overturned them. And then Republicans appealed in 2017. So who are the winners and losers here, and what do you think the November election will look like under these restrictions? Well, it was definitely a setback for the groups that had sued over these restrictions before and won. Now, how big of an impact is still to be seen. Well, we went and looked at Madison and Milwaukee to see, okay, are the people who voted early and in person uh, four years ago, how, or sorry, two years ago, how many of them voted outside that two-week period before the election? And really, it's like one in five uh, voters who had cast those early in-person ballots. So it doesn't look like a huge impact. It's like 16,000 people. Uh, there are no more limits on how many polling sites you can offer for in-person early voting. So if you are a community like Madison, Milwaukee, you can maybe open up more sites. Uh, so there are ways to manage that um, ex- additional voters who are looking to vote in early and in person. Now, it's also hard to know what the impact is going to be because of the push so far for people to vote via mail this fall, right? We're looking at possibly one of the most reliant on mail elections we've had in Wisconsin maybe ever for a fall election. So what's that going to look like? And, you know, what's the demand going to be for early in-person voting if you can vote absentee and not go to a polling site amid the COVID-19 pand- pandemic? How do people feel about going to polling sites come November? There are a lot of unknowns right now. So on the one hand, no, these this is not good for people, uh, especially Democrats, who are trying to um, have a more relaxed rules for voting, get more people to vote, make it easier in their minds to vote. At the same time, it's not necessarily going to be a huge impact on the election overall because we just don't know how the election is going to run. Is it going to be an in-person election or a mail election? We just don't know right now. And is this three-judge panel of the U.S. Appeals Court in Chicago the final say? You know, I asked some of the groups who were involved in the lawsuit, who sued over those uh, GOP-authored laws, what they were thinking. Um, they had not made a decision yet about whether they are going to try to seek an appeal Man, you could ask the full uh, appeals court in Chicago to hear the case. You could appeal to the Supreme Court, but they weren't sure yet because you know they just had to figure out what the what the ruling said, what the impact might be of a of an appeal, and whether it raised a precedent, a possibility of you know setting in their minds, quote unquote, bad precedent if the U.S. Supreme Court got a hold of it and said something for just the nation rather than just the Seventh Circuit and the states under its purview. Also last week, Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson introduced a proposal that would make Juneteenth a federal holiday in exchange for dropping Columbus Day as a federal holiday. Johnson said he didn't mean to slight Christopher Columbus, but just wanted to save taxpayer money by proposing a swap. But then he modified the plan. Now he's proposing to keep Columbus Day and have an additional federal holiday for Juneteenth. 
except in exchange the number of paid leave days for federal employees would be reduced in order to save money. Do you think Johnson took some heat for the original plan? Oh, absolutely took some heat from it. Uh, there, for Republicans in general, there is this kind of tension going on where you have uh, some in the party who are recognizing a rapidly changing discussion nationally about issues such as race, Black Lives Matter. Um, there's a well-known Republican pollster, Fred Lutz, who talked about this on Twitter uh, not that long ago, that he's never seen such rapid movement on an issue um, like this one. And so the discussion is changing. And so there's some pressure on Republicans to be sensitive to that discussion and participate in it. At the same time, there is a significant piece of the Republican base that doesn't want to see uh, military bases renamed, doesn't want to see statues taken down, doesn't want to see Confederate memorials removed. They want to preserve these things, and they're being led in part by President Trump, who's taking a stand saying, we don't want to change these things. So here you have you know, Senator Johnson trying to propose something that seemed to be geared at acknowledging that change in discussion nationally about race with trying to recognize Juneteenth Day, but also you know, he's raised concerns about adding another day off for federal employees, and so he wanted to swap it with Columbus Day. Well, now you're irritating that piece of the base that's saying, hey, we don't want to change things. We don't want to uh, take down these statues or, or change the people that we're honoring. So it just you're kind of stuck in this position of, of making a difficult choice um, when it comes to your party and, and where the base is at. How do you think this new proposal will be received? You know, they're kind of in early parts of the early stage of the discussion about this. So I don't I don't know if this is going to get legs. I mean, whenever you put something out there and then try and put a second idea out there to try to backtrack from your first one, it often doesn't go very well. So I don't know if it's going to go very far, but we'll have to kind of pay attention and watch the discussion goes for Republicans in general. And finally, the ballots have been set for next month's partisan primaries for Congress and state offices, and we're entering the final stretch of campaigning now that July 4th is behind us. I'm seeing that Democratic Congressman Ron Kind is being challenged from the left. Three Democrats are running to challenge Republican Congressman Glenn Grothman, and two Republicans will square off in a primary to challenge Congresswoman Gwen Moore in the Democratic stronghold of Milwaukee. As for state legislative offices, there are a number of state Senate primaries taking place for a number of senators who are retiring, including a five-way Republican primary for Dave Craig's seat in Waukesha County and a seven-way Democratic primary for Fred Risser's seat in Madison. What are some of the more interesting races on the ballot for August 11th, and which seats are truly in play for November? Well, let's start Congress. Um, looking at the 5th Congressional District, Senator William Scott Fitzgerald uh, has been running for that seat for a while to replace Jim Sensmer, a longtime Republican congressman. He has a primary opponent. You know, whoever wins that primary is going to advance to, ba- well, has whoever wins that primary will have a very, 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 very good chance of being the next congressperson from the 5th District as such a Republican district. So that's one you're watching in August because it likely kind of seals a deal for November. Um, and the third with Ron Kind, it's hard to know how much of a challenge uh, this doctor is going to pose to him because he's fairly, not, he's not very well known. Uh, Kind's been there for two decades. He also had three million bucks in the bank at the end of the last reporting period. So he's well positioned to um, make it to the primary. At the legislative level, it's kind of interesting because you have races like the ones you mentioned, the Madison area state Senate seat, um, 
the one in southeastern Wisconsin, Big Ben, where Dave Craig, Republican, had represented, those ones are they're so crowded because whoever runs that primary basically can have that seat for life. And I'm not exaggerating there because Fred Risser held that Senate seat in Madison for more than 50 years. So these are such safe seats that if you can get through that primary and you do your homework once you're in office, you're there for a good long while. So there are a number of seats like that, some of the Milwaukee area that are be interesting to watch. Um, but looking toward November, it's really all about whether Republicans can reach a two-thirds majority in both houses of legislature and negate Governor Avery's veto pen. So in looking at that picture, like down the road, um, in the Senate, there are three races we're really watching. Um, one of them is the 10th Senate District in western Wisconsin, uh, northwestern Wisconsin, where Patty Schottner won a Democrat, won a very Republican seat in a special election in January 2018. She's going to have a difficult time because it's such a Republican seat. Up in the Green Bay area, you have a seat that Dave Hansen, a Democrat's held for uh, pretty much 20 years. He's retiring. There's a primary. The Democrats had to replace him. Uh, the Republican, Eric Wimberger, who lost to Hansen four years, was running again. That one is a seat where um, it's been trending Republican, but Hansen was able to outperform the top of the ticket the last couple of cycles. So can Democrats do that again? Uh, when the Democrats running for that seat, actually, is, is Hansen's nephew, Jonathan Hansen. So something to watch. And over in western Wisconsin, again, in the lacrosse area, Jennifer Schilling, who had been the minority leader in the Senate, she first stepped down from being minority leader. Then she said she wasn't seeking re-election. Then she said she wasn't going to be, um, sorry, first she was seeking re-election, then stepped down as minority leader, then resigned from the legislature. Now that seat is open. Uh, Dan Kapanke, Republican, who held that seat before, is running again. Uh, Brad Foff, who was the DATCAP secretary that Senate Republicans fired, he's running as well as a couple other Democrats. That seat, that's one that Kapanke lost to Schilling by 61 votes four years ago. But if Joe Biden does well at the top of the ticket, that might put that seat in a much tougher, much tougher grab for uh, Republicans than it would have been otherwise. And you're looking on the Republican side, there aren't many targets for Democrats. It's really all about protecting that, that two-thirds majority, and they got to stop Republicans from gaining, netting three seats. In the Assembly, it's the same deal. Uh, Republicans have to net three seats, but it's a more complex picture because you have more suburban Milwaukee seats in play that Republicans now hold that Democrats can can challenge for. So like a Jim Ott from Menominee Falls, um, he won re-election 2018 in a seat that, that Hillary Clinton won in 2016. But this is going to be a unique election because you have the president's race top of the ticket, no U.S. Senate race, and the congressional races really aren't that, you know, highly contested. You go right, basically right from president to the legislature. And how's that going to play? If you're somebody who, like an Ott, who maybe is got the wrong letter behind your name for the, for the top of the ticket's going to be in terms of performance for your district, can you break through that environment? So you swing around, you know, Jim Ott in suburban Milwaukee, uh, Rob Hutton, Republican in suburban Milwaukee, go over to Todd Novak in southwestern Wisconsin, Republican from Dodgeville. His seat, traditionally Democrats win the top of the ticket, you know, overperform for a long time. Can you do that again? For Democrats, Robin Vining in Wauwatosa, she's a top target. Uh, that seat has been really trending better for Democrats, but still at times it's pretty swingy. So can she hold on there? Uh, Steve Doyle, a Democrat from Onalaska, that's a seat that he is often outperforming the top of the ticket. But now we're talking again in that environment where it's it's almost all about Joe Biden and Donald Trump. If you, again, have the wrong letter behind your name for the top of the ticket, can you survive that environment? Go up to northern Wisconsin, uh, Nick Milroy uh, from South Range, the very top of Wisconsin, He's in a district that Trump did well in four years ago. 
Right next door is Beth Myers, a Democrat, another seat where Trump did well four years ago. So do those seats continue to be Trumpy, or do they snap back to where Democrats had kind of been before? If you go back and look at the May special election for the 7th Congressional District, uh, those seats performed pretty well for Democrats, even though Trisha Zunker, the Democrat, lost by healthy margin to Tom Tiffany, the Republican. If you look at the the breakdown of the vote totals by assembly district, those two seats were, you know, decent for Dems. They're, they're normal numbers. So what I'm getting is it's hard to know, like, what the environment's going to be like come November, what Trump's numbers will be like. I mean, they're obviously not very good right now. Can he bounce back to where he was in 2016? You know, it remains to be seen. But there are all kinds of, of factors like that we're trying to piece together. Like, what's this environment going to be like? Is it all about Trump? Is it a, a choice between Trump and Biden? Or is a referendum on the president? And how does that filter down ballot? You know, do, do candidates have a hard time having their own identity beyond just the letter, you know, the RRD behind their name on the ballot? That's, that's a great unknown right now in that race, those races. That's WISPolitics.com editor J.R. Ross. You can join us each week for our conversations. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to Capital Notes on iTunes, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts.